0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&As. I got to start out by thanking everybody who participated in that really fun supporter sale live stream thing. I listened to the polls and people said it was about half of the people wanted it during a weekday in the evening and about the other half wanted it on a weekend during the day. So I'm going to do another one, not this Saturday, but the following Saturday, the 28th, I believe, at like 11 in the morning New York City time. And then after that one... (laughs) probably in another two weeks. I'll do another, but just let me know what time zone I'm missing. Uh, Something that you would want to participate in. I know kind of the west coast of the U.S. might have been not able to participate in the last one. It was just about the time you'd probably be leaving for work. And then uh, now this one, you might be sleeping when this is up. So, you know, let me know if there's a better time for the third one, but I'm definitely going to do it. I had a blast and everybody was so cool and paid right away which is never common, ever. So thank you all again so much. I can't wait to do another one. That was a blast. And let's go through some more boxes and see what crazy stuff I have. Uh, And we didn't even get to a pile I had actually made for that last stream that's kind of sitting just off camera. Uh, so the next one's going to have some really good stuff in it too. Uh, and then, you know, we'll just keep going until I'm cleared out. But anyway, I'll stop rambling and taking up everybody else's time, but to all the supporters that participated in that or plan on participating in the future ones, thank you. That was so much fun, and I hope I got some good stuff in the hands of some really cool people. First up, over on Floatplane, Buster D said they used to use their VP50 Pro to watch Blu-rays with 4x3 1080p24 content on their PC CRT at 1440x1080p72. It was a bit of a pain to set up the profile, and they had to set the custom resolution and then set the output to stretch or something like that, but it definitely looked nice. Probably easier to just use a PC with a custom resolution refresh rate nowadays, though. Except, here's the one problem. And if you've solved this, by all means, please let me know. How do you know that your player is actually running it at 24 frames per second? And that is something that I ran into a lot. I dragged uh, Dan Mons into testing with me. Thank you again, Dan, if you happen to be listening. But what we found is that a lot of players would do 3 2 pull down on 24p content even if you were running in 72, 96, or 120 hertz modes. So that was very interesting to see. And it would have to be both a player and a a custom resolution when refresh rate output that would work in tandem. Now, obviously, if you have like an NVIDIA graphics card, you could set it to whatever and it should work. But that's going to be a big problem. So if you have something like a Blu-ray player that could output 1080p24, which most can, most have that option, running it through the VP50 and using it to downscale or to just um, crop the sides and watch it at 1440 by 1080, that would be a much better thing because that would guarantee that you're actually running it at 24 frames per second tripled. So you get that proper film motion and not that weird... 3.2 3.2 pull down jutter. Um, so the Tink 4K is able to do this. It still requires a bunch of tweaking in order to be able to do it. My hope is that by release date, I would have a custom profile and custom mode line package. So you download them both, you just extract them to the SD card, and then you go in and you select, like, you know, watch a Blu-ray on a PC CRT monitor profile, or I'll I'll figure out a better name for it, of course. Um, But that's, you know, that's like a secondary project I'm working on. I have so much other stuff that I got to do, but that's definitely an important thing. But if anybody wanted to, I mean, I'm sorry to turn this into shameless self-promotion, but I am selling that VP50. So if anybody's interested in messing with stuff like this, it is a great device and its downscaling is very good as well. And that's the thing. Like, my OPPO Blu-ray player does beautiful upscaling and horrible downscaling. It's all pixelated and weird, whereas the PS3 does a very good job playing 1080p content in 480p. So that's another thing, whereas, you know, um, downscaling for the purpose of retro gaming, just removing every other line, the tinks do an excellent job but downscaling for film where you actually want a smoother downscale, it's not there yet because it's how many people are really using it for that. That would not be a launch day focus if it were my product. So yeah, if you're looking to do weird stuff like that now, the VP50 is probably the thing to get. Uh, And if you're planning on getting the Tink 4K anyway and you're not in a rush, then just buy that and wait for Mike to eventually uh, add modes that would kind of improve on stuff like that. So, uh, but once again, I mean, in it's my very strong opinion that Mike should not be taking his time to have that as a launch date feature. There's way more other upscaling related features that would be more relevant to 99% of the people using it versus just the, you know, my fellow nerds like you Buster that, uh, that want to do stuff like this and that appreciate these things. There's just not so many of us or even not many of us with the equipment. So I gotta, I gotta kind of defend Mike in this one and say that, you know, for the purpose of downscaling Blu-rays to watch on a VGA CRT monitor, that's not going to be the focus of the Tink 4K's launch uh, firmware, but it can do it, and it just needs a little more tweaking to get it perfect. So, yeah, I'll leave a link to the eBay stuff in case you're interested. Next up, over on Patreon, Tim the Gamer 23 had a thought that they were just kind of pondering. How far can you take modding and ODEs or flashcards before original hardware isn't considered original anymore? Now, that's definitely going to be a decision that you have to come to yourself, and I will share some perspectives. There are some people out there that think even just cracking open a console or, or changing, uh, doing a, a preventative maintenance recap makes it not original. I don't at all believe that. Uh, there are other people who think that doing preventative maintenance, like fixing things that are broken or um, you know doing capacitor replacements to make sure that they don't leak out and kill the console, but that's it, nothing else. Is as far as you should go when you still consider it original consoles and original experience. I kind of, I, I don't disagree with that, but I do have a few. <clears throat> a few other thoughts that I kind of go for whereas I do think that for the most part optical drive emulators and rom carts are really just solving problems and not so much destroying the original experience now if you're somebody who putting that cartridge in and feeling that click or hearing the disk spins up uh spinning up if that's important to you then then yeah then it's not original hardware anymore that's less important to me uh from the modding side of things Um, You know, when you do something like the subcarrier bypass on the original Sega Genesis Model 1, so let's say instead of doing a triple bypass, you do a subcarrier bypass and you recap it. What you're essentially doing is fixing problems that Sega had from the factory. And there were problems that some of them looked terrible even back then, and some problems you can't even really notice unless you had a flat panel or a PVM or something like that, things that you wouldn't have had in the 80s when it was released. So stuff like that, I think, walks a line of, you know, and uh, same thing with the SNES Mini, re-enabling S-Video and RGB on that. You know, that walks the line of, yeah, it's changing it. However, they're not cutting anything you You could always reverse them. And I think that kind of walks down the line of RGB bypasses, triple bypass, stuff like that. <clears throat> yeah, you're definitely changing the console. But if you do it in a way where it could be reversed if you choose so, that's where I still am okay with it. It's only when you're drilling Swiss cheese holes in the back of a console and cutting traces that cannot be repaired and stuff like that. Like the 3.6 bypass for the Neo Geo removes composite video, but you get so much better RGB, and if you ever wanted it back, you could just very carefully reconnect those traces. So it's got to be up to you on how far you want to go. But for me personally, if you're still turning on an original console, it's still the original experience, or, or close enough to... But, you know, there's a huge gray area in there. So make your own decision um, and also just consider other options these days. So if you are somebody who's only ROM-focused but you still love your nostalgia, still go to retro game shops, go to expos, pick up your favorite cartridges, and, uh, you know, but have some reason. You know, if you love Neo Turf Masters, Don't spend $15,000 on it unless you're mega rich and want to spend that money. Go get play it on the Mr. or something like that. But go get a different Neo Geo cartridge that is super special that's not $15,000. So it's all up to you. I just like to offer different perspectives on this stuff, and I'm cool with everything. The only thing I wholeheartedly disagree on is that, like, you shouldn't even open consoles. Anybody that's ever owned a Game Gear, Turbo Express, an original Xbox, they'll all laugh at the thought of that. So uh, other than that, I'm kind of, I see everybody else's point on it, and um, I I just, it's got to be up to you, I guess. Next up, Perkin Warbeck said, they've heard me previously say that Y adapters are okay for audio outputs, but what about audio inputs? So if they have an Xbox Series S and a gaming PC that they each want to run into an audio input of a device on a Mac, is that safe to use with a Y cable? So that's where it starts to get a little bit more complicated. If only one of those two sources are powered on at a time, From a safety point of view, it should be completely fine. I would not have them both powered on at the same time. I would buy a mixer for that. You could get them super cheap, especially if you're talking about older analog audio. Uh, There were some Radio Shack realistic brands that used to be out back in the day that you could probably get for near nothing now that didn't suck. Um, I don't know about any newer ones that are on the cheaper side, but I would absolutely find that if you need both of the audios coming in together because you could ride the levels and you can make sure there's no clipping. Man, it shouldn't cost you much money at all. If you really do just want one on at a time, though, try it the worst thing that could happen is you get some ground hum or some other interference and you know, you wasted some money on a $3 3 3.5 millimeter Y adapter that goes in your bin to use for a future product. That's fine. Um, The only thing I just wouldn't do is have them both on at the same time with a Y uh, combiner. Cause while it might be fine, I just, it'll definitely get you some interference, some clipping. It's not the intended It's almost definitely not what you're intending to do with this. So for one at a time, sure, give it a try. It's perfectly safe. If you need both powered on at the same time, any mixer, and even if you have to go from 3.5 millimeter to RCA, there's other $2 adapters that could do that for you as well that should be pretty easy to work all of this out for you. So yeah, I, I just, one at a time, sure, both at the same time, probably fine, but I wouldn't do it. Next up, Vert Penguin said they're going to move away from CRTs to go full digital for their screen on their beloved RetroCart. They have a Mister and an OSSC in their setup. They have an old Packard Bell flat screen, which is VGA and DVI. The screen, despite its age, is very good. It has no ghosting whatsoever and a glass panel. Unfortunately, when they use it with their Mister, they get no signal with a cable that's HDMI to DVI. They tried two cables with the same result. Also, the HDMI is working fine, and the DVI mode is set to 1 in the Mr. INI. Do I have any clue on what's happening? Also, their OSSC seems to freak out the screen. It turns on and then off rapidly. They think it's something produced by the OSSC. Would a RetroTank 4K or 5X do better? So, I just want to double-check something. Um... What you're, I think you're saying is that you have two completely different devices that are plugging into this monitor that are not working through the DVI input. So my nerd, my nerd brain immediately goes to, there could be or probably something wrong with the DVI input of that monitor. Can you try anything else for that to make sure the signal can get fed to it? Or is there any other way to test it with an HDMI device? Next, test it with 480p and see if that works. An easy way to do that is just um, power off the OSSC, plug it into the monitor, power it on, and you should have a default test pattern that comes up in 480p. If it freaks out with that, then it's almost surely the monitor that's the problem. Um, You know, if you're going to switch from a CRT to full digital on a cart, you're going to have to really worry about a lot of other stuff like that as well. Whereas if you're just using 15 kilohertz sources on a CRT, you might actually be better off sticking with whatever CRT you have or finding a decent uh, consumer grade one, You know, figuring out whatever you want to do to solve that issue. But my gut's telling me you need to check that DVI input before you do anything else. And worst case uh, scenario, if you really love that monitor, you can get like a really cheap $8 HDMI to VGA converter and use that in the VGA input of the monitor for both of those. But I would just check that input first, and I'll leave a link to the DAC that I've been using that should be in stock, that should be okay, but if you're listening to this in the future, don't count on it, because these things change very often. But I'll leave the link to the one that I've been using so far, or recently, I mean. Next up, Alan Kebab said, I mentioned the Framemeister recently, and they wondered how it now stacks up against the latest scalers, such as the RetroTINK 5X. Is there still a place for it in people's rigs, or is it way behind the times now and considered a bit of a relic? Well, I have two very strong opinions on this. First, if you already own one, then I wouldn't just be looking to get rid of it. I would look to the newer scalers to see what other options they have to see if that's something you're even interested in at all. If so, then yeah, maybe you'll end up upgrading to a Retro tank 4K or something like that. However, if you're in the market now for a scaler, I would never recommend the Framemeister just because there's other options out there that are priced the same that could do a lot more. The Tink 5X has those absolutely awesome CRT emulation filters. All of the other stuff Mike's been adding over the years to it, it is about as complete of a product as humanly possible. The Tink 4K is just bringing it to a totally different level. Um, The OSSC and OSSC Pro are both great options as well, depending on what input signals that you use, and all of them are lower latency. So not that the Framemeister has high latency, it's just a product that was amazing for its time, and there's better choices now. But once again, if you own one and you like it, there's no reason to sell it for a Tank 5X unless you're obsessed with really awesome CRT filters. But if that's the case, maybe wait and see what the 4K does and see if it fits your your budget and your setup better. But overall, I mean, you know, the meister was amazing for its time. It did everything we needed it to, but it's just, it's time to move on to other products, and I would... Even if yours is working great in your setup, I would just, you know, kind of start thinking long-term, you know? Maybe I'll get another scaler next year. Maybe I'll wait till it dies. I don't know, but I definitely wouldn't just toss it in the bin yet. I, I would... um I would kind of just wait and see. The only other thing is if you happen to get one dirt cheap, which never happens, they are still amazing for streaming. So if you happen to get a Framemeister for 50 bucks, yeah, get that over a a brand new scaler for much more money because all the other stuff doesn't matter. You're just going to have a really awesome streaming box. But anyway, I hope I added some perspective for that and I hope I didn't piss off any Framemeister owners. I'm just being honest because it's a great device, but it's had its time. Remora has a question that I have absolutely no answer to. I've never done any of this stuff, so I'm going to have to defer to the, uh, the community and see if anybody would be kind enough to post in the comments and let them know. But they finally get a chance to install DreamPie on their RetroNAS, but it brought up an issue with Quake 2 and Unreal Tournament. They can't play those games with any of the default controls. Luckily, they already have a Dreamcast keyboard, but they can't bring themselves to pay sixty dollars for a ball mouse just to get that maple connector. So, does anyone know of an adapter to use a standard USB mouse on the Dreamcast? So, I actually have two questions, or two or three questions. First of all, why are Quake Two and Unreal Tournament not working properly using DreamPie in this setup? Uh, second of all, just as a generic question, are there adapters to use USB mice and keyboards even on the Dreamcast? Um, And I guess third, is there any other any other info anybody has? So I'm really sorry, the remora, I got absolutely nothing for you. But hopefully some of the awesome people in the community who are listening might be able to chime in in the comments. The only thing I would like to politely remind everybody is YouTube deletes almost all links. It does not even go into my held for review bin. It just deletes the comment with the link in it, and I never even know it's there. So if you have a recommendation, please explain it out. So, you know, go to Amazon and search for USB adapter for Dreamcast. Don't just drop in an Amazon link, and it's not me who's deleting the links. I promise you that. So hopefully we could find the answer for you. Next up, Jeff L. wanted to follow up on the conversation of trying to force an NTSC Wii to output RGB SCART, because everything else in their setup is RGB SCART, so why not? They said they were able to force PAL60 in USB loader, which produced a stable picture after adjusting V-hold on their monitor, but they couldn't correct the distorted colors. So maybe the issue was my PVM could support NTSC and PAL, and the model you're using is NTSC only. I completely had forgotten about that. So that might be an issue as well. Um, And it's more, this issue is a bigger problem than just getting their Wii running in RGBS. It's because the Wii is also a really great emulation machine, especially if you're on a budget and you already own a Wii. So it's not just about playing Wii games in RGB. It's about also getting the emulation working. So I'm wholeheartedly on board with that. The only thing I have to add, though, is I know you're trying to do this on a budget. However, continuing to mess with this stuff um, might be helpful, but you could just pick up a RetroTank transcoder and be done with it completely. It's just component video in, SCART out, and you're done. So, you know, it's obviously an investment, and I'd much rather try to find a free way to do this for you, but you don't have to worry about NTSC PAL. You don't have to worry about changing your console or anything like that. So I'll leave a link, but just at least consider that and see. Next up, Oliver Clare is looking to create a video documenting the crazy and awesome retro gaming setup they have built over the past couple of years, um, and just want some tips on how to tackle a video of that magnitude the one thing I'm going to say before I even answer your question is I've absolutely learned that what works for me often doesn't work with other people. I remember doing an interview with Yahel from wrestling with gaming, talking about how do you do your setup? How do you know, how do you do yours? And I, I said how I had done it at the time. And he was like, that would drive me crazy. I could never do it. Whereas at that time it was very helpful for me. So I can give you the advice that I personally would do right now. I'm a, i am I could throw out another tip. Uh, but Let's just kind of... I'll just jump right into it. You had mentioned that you already had to write a script for the video. So what I then would do is record the audio, record you talking, and just record that script, and uh, just record it to WAV files, and dump that into a timeline. Um, You might also want to take one quick video with your camera as well, just like a test video. You might even want to just do uh, a couple of like white balance shots just to get an idea of what the room is going to look like. These little things... Uh, they're very cheap. I think they're just about 10 bucks, and you just put them in front of your camera. You make sure you're reflecting the light properly, and you could use them in post processing to. Make sure that the colors aren't all weird. Now, you might think I'm getting a little obsessive, where especially when my videos aren't even that good, but that's a very basic thing that you're going to want to do because what if you have different color or different color temperature lights in different parts of the room? So that's always good to kind of normalize things. But I would take one or two shots just so your video editing software knows what the video is going to be like, and I would dump that into the timeline first. Then I would put all of the audio that you recorded, and then I would shoot video based on your script. So if your audio says, "Now here is my modern gaming section," so I want to show my Xbox Series X. So then now you know, okay, well, you know, I'll I'll do a shot where I pan the camera over, and now I could be at that. And then sometimes I even have the timeline playing on my computer here as I'm doing the shots right behind me or right to the next uh, right to the side of me. So I know that I'm holding on to whatever I'm talking about for long enough and zooming in at the right times and stuff like that. So if you've already written a script, I would do the audio first and then drop the video files over it. And then I personally always do the me on camera shots at the very end because y'all know what I look like. So if there's ever a time to put any example other than me, I would do that. The only exception is when I'm trying to say something silly or snarky or whatever else, and I want to, you know, make a st- stupid face while doing it. You know, that's most of the time, that's, it's rare that I feel like I need to be on camera though. Usually I want to do anything else. So uh, that's just something to think of. The other tip that I could give is there's been a, a many different times where I already have been testing a product for a long time. So I already know what to do. I already know what to expect. Uh, I just want to get it, the video done. So what I'll end up doing is the opposite of that. I won't write a script. And then I'll take a camera on a tripod and I'll walk through all of this. But I'll stumble my words. I'll have to repeat myself. I'll have to, you know, do the same thing twice because I decide I didn't like what I did. But I basically do the whole thing that way. Put it in the timeline, edit it out, and then go and re-record all of the audio. Uh, most uh, there's some really good transcription stuff out there. Premiere even has some uh, has it built in. That's not terrible. Where if you do that, you could just export the entire video as a text file, and then I would go back and read that again. So that it's the opposite now. My my voice would match the video that I already shot, and then finally go back and do the me on camera shots last. So once again, you know if. This is what I do. If that doesn't work for you, that's fine. That's what's been working for me recently, the past couple of years. But you know, I I really enjoy giving advice like this because even if it's just the worst advice for you, maybe it'll spark a better idea. So uh, keep them coming, and definitely share that video when you're done because I'm really interested in seeing it. Next up, Tony Escobar wants to know how to update RetroNas so the Saturn folder appears for Mister users. Now that the Saturn Core is available via Update All on the Mister, Uh, it is. Super easy. Log into RetroNAS any way you would like. SSH um, through the browser if you have that uh, or just, you know, if you have access direct to the terminal, go for it that way. And then go into install and then scroll down to Samba for Mr. And then go down to the last option, run directory updater now. It'll run so fast you'll think that it crashed but that's it. That's all it'll take. It'll update the directories and now poof, the Saturn directory appears. So I love the easy questions. I like the ones where I get to talk for a bit too, but having an easy question is, uh, with a good solid answer is always a positive thing for me. So that's all you need to do, Tony. Next up is a question from K2. You ever see the movie District B13, by the way? that's uh, Whenever I see K2, that's all I can think about now. Guy, even has it shaved in the side of his head anyway um they have a bvm and have gone to great lengths to rgb mod old systems but they also have a 1985 25 inch sony that's just too cool not to play nes on and the television's rf only they know it'll never beat excellent, but their goal is to keep this as a time machine setup. So I got to pause right there and say I am 100% with you. I love stuff like that. And I love that you have both. You have just like the cleanest, most badass RGB monitor ever. But you also just appreciate like, hey, this is what it was like in the 80s to play this stuff. And it's got definitely has some charm to it as well. So I'm 100% on board with you on this one. However, they've noticed that some systems do RF better than others. Using the same RF adapter on that TV, they find that their NES video output is fair, master system is poor, and their TurboGrafx-16 is best. They're just curious if there's been any RF enthusiasts out there that have messed with this. Maybe I have a recipe that might have a good chance of improving it, or is it just futile? So... Um, There's a couple of answers. First, some motherboards are just always going to be worse than others. You'll find this with Master System, with NES. It's just, it is what it is. So you could bend over backwards and you're never going to get perfect video output. However, one thing I've definitely noticed, especially on the NES, is that little expansion board on the right that has the power signal and the RF adapter. That capacitor often leaks and goes bad. So, And it's unfortunately the hardest one to replace. So doing a recap would most likely improve that scenario. But for the master system and the TurboGrafx, I'm not sure. Um, you could try to do the opposite and convert down. But I guess I have a couple more questions for you. Are you going to have two setups? So this 1985 badass old Sony TV with a stock NES, a stock master system, etc., and then your BVM with your RGB modded consoles and maybe a Mr. or something, or are you trying to have a setup with two? Now, it should be easy because you should be able to use the RF output of your master system while also using the RGB output, but that's going to be a different... That that might also be something to, to figure out as well. So I don't know. It's, um, it's something where you're going to have to accept that not all of the motherboards are going to be able to output really clean RF, but I would try certain things on it. And as long as you find a modder that's reputable, or if you yourself has the patience and the ability to do it, Some people disagree with me, but I personally think that recapping your consoles, doing it right, you know, patiently making it look like a stock console, but even though there's new caps on it, I think as long as you do a good job, there really is no negative result of that. Because what if you spend the time, you spend all day just painstakingly recapping this thing and you make it look just like a factory brand new NES and it doesn't improve the video quality at all? well, now you've still just bought yourself another 20, 30 years out of that console. So that's kind of why I'm I'm quicker to say if you have the ability and the patience, just do a recap and see where that goes. Not for monitors, that's different. But for NES, Genesis, stuff that isn't too complicated to do, I would, I would start with that first and kind of go from there. Um, but if anybody else has any thoughts, I'm definitely open to this. Whenever I embrace RF, I embrace it for everything, all the interference. uh, You know, I just kind of go down that road. Another thing that you could try is you could get any one of those adapters, whether it's the brand new one from Mr. Add-ons or an old VCR or one of the -the off-the-shelf ones from the early 2000s, but you could get a composite to RF adapter and see if that improves it. And if that's the case, it could just be that the circuit around the RF wasn't built well, because maybe it just didn't really matter that much. So if you have the budget to do so, I would try one of those. Um, And really... You know, the getting the one for Mr. Add-ons is going to be great because it's brand new and because it's, you know, a neat tool to have. But if you don't want to spend the 35 bucks plus shipping, which, once again, I still think that's a good price. But if you just don't want to spend that, try that with a VCR. You know, maybe you happen to have one laying around. You should to hook up to that awesome 25-inch Sony. So maybe this is an excuse to get yourself a VCR and then have composite video go into that and have the VCRs RF going out and see what happens. Do you get a better signal? Is it exactly the same? And that'll really help you troubleshoot stuff like this. Um, it could be the capacitors on the uh, tuner part of the TV, but now you're getting into recapping a TV, which, you know, at that point, unless the caps are leaky and you don't want it to die, I just. I would kind of use that until you, you didn't have that option anymore. But those are just my thoughts. Please let me know if you want me to elaborate on anything. And, uh, you know, always feel free to ask more questions. Next up, Belmont is looking to do an open tendo build. And one of the things that they were going to source was that new Power RF module, the one I was just talking about with K2. And they were wondering if I had a suggestion on which one to pick up. Um, some were supposedly good, but people have had some issues with them recently. And I have only tested one. I've only tested the one replacement board from The Real Phoenix. I believe they have a new revision of that coming out soon. So you might want to message them and see. Um, they're always in the, the chats with you as well, so you probably already know them from the live streams. But I would check and see what the status is on that, because that's gone through many revisions and and gone through all the bumps in the road of a new product. If not, you might want to look back at some of the original released ones from Boardy that are much more basic. And That's not an insult. That's a good choice. If you're looking to only do an original NES type of thing uh, with no extra features, then the basic one is what you would want. You know, just power and then um, standard video output. So I would look at both of those. I don't mean any disrespect to the other boards that are out there. I just haven't tested them, so I have no feedback. And I get you know i take my recommendations really seriously so if i accidentally skip over a perfectly good product i feel bad but i feel way less than if i was like yeah i heard it's fine try it and then you blow out your open tendo build so yeah i would i would talk to the real phoenix about that and see um hopefully this final revision as some of the the last little quirks were uh, ironed out of this thing, and just see if that one's ready. And if not, then go back to one of the original boardy boards that I believe a lot of people tested for this exact scenario. Uh, You know, the capacitor in their RF board leaked out and just destroyed the board, so they they just needed composite video out, and they didn't want to have to source an original. So that's kind of the way I would go. Uh, But if anybody has any other suggestions, let me know, because I'm always interested in stuff like this. One more from Oliver, they had just gotten back their Neo Geo CD from a modder who had put in Vertex Neo SD Loader, and the modder had recommended getting a different power supply because the replacement PSU that Oliver had originally got put out some pretty bad interference, which is really common with lower end replacement PSUs. But when the modder sent the console back, they said the um, to try picking up a triad, which I usually completely agree with, except I don't know which triad would fit the Neo Geo CD. So Stone Age Gamer has one at $55 that should work with all models of Neo Geo CD from 100 to 240 volts. So I don't know anything about that. And my gut is telling me Always proceed with caution, even with companies like Stone Age Gamer, who try really hard to make sure that you get good stuff. So has there anybody been anybody out there that uses it? Do you know anybody else who's done any testing on it? And also, maybe if Firebrand X is listening, he could chime in and see if there's any Neo Geo CD-specific psu for a triad that would work and you know triads aren't the best power supplies ever made but they're consistently not crap which is why i always recommend them i've never heard of anybody picking one up putting them on a scope or plugging it in and getting interference or or bad issues whereas that's always a problem with some more of the generic stuff so i would see if uh, fbx could help us out with this one but if not give the one at stone age gamer a try and if it sucks, let me know and let them know, and I'll work with them behind the scenes to try to get a better one. Uh, but, I mean, they do put in some effort to make sure you have some quality stuff. So if FBX can't help us out, then, uh, yeah, go. I'll link to the Stone Age Gamer one as well, so anybody could let us know if they have any experience with it and what they think. John Strom has a question about VHS capture, and this is always so much more complicated than you would think. So I'm going to answer your question first, but please stick with me because there's more to it. John said they picked up a VCR with an HDMI output, so they want to know the best way to capture that output on a Mac. So my recommendation would be in that scenario, you've already decided that's exactly what you want to do. I would double check the resolution that that VCR is outputting and then just find the cheapest capture device to match. If it's outputting 480 p, you could just get the cheapest can't link like Epos Fox calls them for like $18 and just record it to whatever format it has and you're fine. That it'll be totally passable. If it outputs 1080p, you're gonna want to do the same thing. Get any cheap Mac compatible USB capture card that can handle up to 1080p. You don't have to worry about what we often talk about in retro gaming about compressed colors, uncompressed VHS or compressed out of the box anyway. So 1080p 60 at any color compression just get your capture to whatever format um, you know, H264 is totally fine. X264 codec is free to download and stuff like that. So all of that's totally fine. The only thing that you need to know is that these are all very passable solutions. So if you have old stuff you recorded off a of TV from the 80s when you were a kid or old family videos that are kind of messy with a lot of interference and some audio pops, this is fine. But if you wanted quality, that's when you're going to need to probably hold off to my a week or two for my next live stream. So I'll give you a very quick rundown. Um, the last time I tested a bunch of random capture cards and capture devices that I had, as well as a DVD VCR combo unit, the one that was selling for like 600 on eBay for a long time, because people were obsessed about the combo unit with an HDMI, as well as a DVD recorder and nice VCR separate. So two devices. And that destroyed all of the rest. Getting a really good VCR with S video output into a good DVD recorder with a time-based corrector built in and an S video input. It's easy and the quality was absolutely there. You hit play, you hit record. When it's done, you hit stop and then finalize. 20 minutes later, you got a DVD. Since DVDRs only really last uh, a few years, definitely rip that to your hard drive as an MKV or something, but that's it. You're done. Now, I wanna see what's the next step. I got another combo unit here that I wanna try out. I also have a data path capture card that's supposedly very good at composite and S-Video. And Krista also built me a Doomsday duplicator. And while that is definitely gonna be the best archival copy, do you really need to spend that much money and that much time? And that's what I want to find out next time. So uh, if you know for a fact that you are the tapes that you want to digitize are just okay, and it's not the most important thing to you, cheapest capture card that's Mac compatible, you should be just fine. The only thing is, if you want quality, maybe hang out for another week or two. I'll follow up with another live stream. It's going to be a long one. It's probably going to be an all day stream because I want to dig into all of these different options. And maybe I could even get some help on the Doomsday Duplicator side as well. But yeah, so two answers to your questions. Hopefully, uh, hopefully I at least pointed you in the right direction. A couple of questions from Retro Music Dan. First, their parents just moved and discovered a treasure trove of VHS tapes in the attic, including a bunch of horror films. They're planning to have a watch party over Halloween. As they have a RetroTank 5X, they thought it might be fun to use it to get a different quality to the videos. Just looking for opinions on what's good or bad ideas when using that scaler with video content. For info, they're in a PAL region, and the TV is a pretty old Samsung LCD from around 2012. Nothing special. Pretty sure the tape player is composite over SCART and RF only. The TV does actually have analog inputs, but that's no fun. So, a couple answers to that. So, as long as everything matches, PAL input to PAL output, then you're cool. Yeah, or the same thing, NTSC to NTSC. The Tink can't do PAL to NTSC or vice versa. So you have to make sure that your display can handle whatever color space is coming from or color region is coming from the source. Um, but other than that, if you're talking about having a watch party and you're not talking about digitizing old tapes, which I'm sure you're not because I'm sure all of those horror films could be found on DVD and Blu-ray now. So if you just want to have like a fun nostalgic thing where you do all this stuff I would absolutely update your Tank 5X to the latest firmware, 371. And I would try using CRT filters, and I would try using some of the VHS and VCR-specific things like uh, the 3.2 pull-down stuff that was in there just to see. Um, <laughs> I think it would be kind of neat to try out. But I think uh, it doesn't really matter if your Samsung LCD is old. VHS is not going to look great on a flat panel, no matter what you do to it but it's probably going to look like a lot of fun if you have some of those CRT filters. So I would give those a try. Um, Dark Room, which you probably would anyway if it's a horror film. Dark Room, just because the uh, filters do lower the brightness. So that's kind of, but that's really it. I mean, it's, you know, the Tink 5X does composite over SCART, so you could just use that. That's totally fine. Any SCART cable should handle that and just plug it in and go. So that actually sounds like a lot of fun. The next question from Dan, can an RGB modded N64 output component video? So some, but that might not be what you want to do. And I'll just elaborate for a second. First, any of the earlier revision N64 motherboards that are compatible with the easy RGB mods are only outputting RGB, period. So you could get a RetroTink transcoder for that and just do RGB to uh, component, and that should be fairly easy. But there's no choice to do that in the mod. Now, the more advanced mods, I believe boardies can do component video, but you would probably have to make your own custom cable for that as well. Um, and I'm going off of memory here, so maybe not, but I'm pretty sure that's something where after you install it, you could, it'll probably output RGB by default, and then you would have to switch it in the menu to output component video instead. Um, and that would absolutely work, but I do have an opinion that it's just an opinion. It's totally fine if you think this is stupid. The advanced RGB mods are equal in complexity to install as an HDMI mod. And you you could get one of Greg's 3D printed rear uh, ports so that you don't even need to cut for HDMI anymore. So I would really consider why do you want component video? And would HDMI be something that you would appreciate as well? Because if you're going to, especially if you're going to pay somebody to mod it, uh, do a more complicated mod like that as well, it's going to be more expensive. Maybe you just go to HDMI now, and then maybe you set it to just 240p output. You could just plug it into a monitor, set the video output, and then just get yourself an HDMI to component video converter for like one of the eBay ones for like 20 bucks. And that's how you could get your component video. But then if you ever want to go to a flat panel, you have that option. If you ever upgrade to a Tink 4K, you could use the HDMI direct out to have a perfectly clean signal. But if you have no desire to use HDMI, then I just wasted your time. I just wanted to add that perspective because absolutely no shade for the other mods. The N64 Advanced, I think it's called, is absolutely awesome. Tim's is great too. But if you're going to go through that much complexity, maybe get the one that could do lots of things if your budget works for it and all that stuff. So I just wanted to add some perspective. But to answer your question, the early RGB mods do not... I believe Bordies does, but it would require a custom cable and maybe just consider HDMI. Next up, the dressing gown wants to know what other maintenance-related tips than the usual would I have for consoles. And for me personally, it's always very basic. Whenever I get a new console, I absolutely clean the heck out of it. I clean the plastic, I clean the uh, circuit boards inside. Sometimes you'll find a lot of factory flux on it, so I'll use flux remover and then um, some isopropyl and electronics brush, and then always, even though it's isopropyl, you still want to blow it out with compressed air, tap it out, leave it in the UV rays, you know, even in the sunlight just for a couple of minutes to make sure it's actually dried out. But cleaning is a big one, especially the controllers. Think of what gross teenage boys would often do before or after playing a video game yeah, scrub that controller clean, get take the buttons out, take it all apart, use the cleaning methods I always put on the website for that. And after it's clean, I always do a visual inspection. And if it's an important console, and I feel like I could handle it, because some consoles have a million capacitors, but like a Genesis, a Super Nintendo, I would, even an NES master system, I would replace the capacitors. Because like I said before, maybe you don't need to, but as long as you do it right and you don't mess anything up, it'll increase the longevity. Uh, I clean out the cartridge connectors as best as I can. And then the only other thing that I do in some occasions is the 7805 voltage regulator. So I take out the original, I clean the absolute heck out of the heatsink. I use that, um, the, the special cleaner that you use to get old thermal paste out. Then I also clean it with, there's usually like a, a two-step thing when, you, when it comes, you know, the first cleaner and then the second. And then I put the new 7805 new thermal paste. And that's another thing where, you know, replacing the voltage regulator might, or the DC to DC voltage thing might not be needed at all but like capacitors it's going to go at some point and if you have a, no, one brand that you buy that you know is good that's not going to hurt anything so and, and there's been a few times where i've had just weird issues and i replaced the dc to dc converter the 7805 and all the issues went away so i don't think that's a bad thing but for that that's really the only things that i would do uh, i often don't change thermal pads like if it's an n64 i would leave that alone Uh, But I mean, those are the basics. Other than that, it would really just depend on what consoles and if there's any known issues, like super graphics and Neo Geo's have that one plastic part that could scrape your motherboard. So we either snip it or put some double sided tape on there to just or even just some black tape to prevent it from scraping. CDXs have a similar issue where you should put some black tape underneath the CD assembly to prevent that from scraping. So there's some console-related stuff in there, but for the most part, the stuff that I just said, the basics is what I would recommend. Demon Ku has some questions regarding DVD and CD burning, and unfortunately, there are not many good answers to this. So the last time we talked about this, I showed an Asus drive that was about 100 bucks. Did I have one that's DVD or CD only that's cheaper, that's still reliable? Um, none that I know of. You could find used ones, obviously, but then you're using used equipment. So, I would say if you find, you know, like an old Plex store drive, I would pick that up and see if you can get that for 40, 50 bucks. Fine, but a lot of Plex store drives that are known to being really good quality for burning sell for more than that Asus drive that I linked to. So, that's why I would recommend that. It's not that. I'm telling everybody you need to get an ultra HD drive to burn CDs. It's price versus what you get. So if uh, you're on a budget, try to find some used ones that uh, used Plex stores that might work for cheap. And if anybody else has any ideas, I'm definitely all ears. And also when it comes to recommendations for disc quality, there are some misleading brandings that like to imply that they were the good quality ones. So do I have any recommendation? No, nothing. The last time uh, somebody discussed this issue, they supposedly found real Taiyo discs in which I bought like 300, I bought like 100 of each type, and then that was five years ago, and I, I still have most of those. So can anybody else help out? Does anybody else have recommendations for something linked on eBay, Amazon, AliExpress, something that's good media that's known to not be bad? And does anybody else have any other recommendations for burners that can handle... Um, older stuff, <coughs> excuse me, at slower speeds that would be good for retro. Um, I'm all ears. I'd like to know that myself, but if you want to just kind of skip to the end, that Asus drive should cut it, and I don't know about the the media. That would, would be very cool to find some links for that. Well, that's it for this time. As usual, if you're a supporter, ask any question that you would like wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post, because the way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. And as you saw here today, I like just scrolling through and reading them as if we were hanging out somewhere, having a chat. So any question, fire away. And if for whatever reason, I don't answer it, it's almost always because the question came in after I was done recording, but before the video got uploaded. So you could always feel free to message me and I never, ever delete questions. So if your questions disappeared, it's because it's a glitch in whichever support place that you're using. I've had a few people over the years tell me that their questions got deleted. It's never, ever me. I promise you that. So sorry if that happens to you, but anyway, as always, thank you all so much. I really appreciate you. You are why all of this stuff keeps going. So thank you to all the supporters and, uh, I will see you next week and hopefully also see you on the 28th for that other very cool live sale thingy.